Hey guys, it's me, Alex, and tonight's episode is brought to you by The Standard. Please go to facebook.com slash thestandardpdx, or if you're in meat space and you enjoy ethanol going into your system, go to 14 Northeast 22nd. If you go there, you might see me. We can sip drinks together, play pinball, have fun, discuss things. It will be joyous. Facebook.com slash thestandardpdx. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Heiser, for coming on. I very much appreciate um, your time. Sorry I messed up our start time. Oh, no. It's no worries at all. You you have a doctor in front of your name. I believe your time is very, very, <laughs> very more demands on it than mine. <laughs> well, it, it you know, honestly, it gets kind of chaotic at times, but, you know, you just kind of make do. Yeah, I'll take it. I was, you, you gave me an emergency cell and everything worked out, so... I call it I call it successful meetup via phone. So, for for the audience at home, I I've said well I've talked kind of at length that the uh, Ancient Aliens debunked, which I couldn't be more of a fan of. I found that just so terrifically amusing and just an intellectual smackdown on such a wonderful level. Uh, Doctor Heiser is somebody that was involved in that project. He was the well, you saw him on the film if you watched it. Uh, you have a doctorate in. Semitic Studies in the Hebrew Bible, is that the title? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, so you're a man that knows his stuff. And essentially, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to put your stuff into uh, too small of a package, but you're basically not a fan of uh, the Sitchin work, the ancient aliens. No, I'm not, and that's, that's putting it kindly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... From what I understand, and obviously I cannot read little wedge-shaped things, his theory, and I'm using that term colloquially, is, you know, long story short, aliens come down, muck about with our DNA, make us mine gold, they're pretending to be aliens, that's sort of the root of everything, that's where the ancient aliens theory comes from. And from what I've heard of you know, I've seen you talk about it seems like none of that's really in the text as far as you can find well my my fundamental gripe with Sitchin you know basically what he does is he you know he goes he goes back to you know Mesopotamian texts Sumerian and Akkadian Babylonian texts uh, he's not doing any translation work in these things you know contrary to the some of his own claims, but to be honest with you, mo- most of most of his uh, quote-unquote reputation as a scholar, I-, I think, was sort of hyped by his publisher. You know, but then he, you know, he wound up sort of running with it. Um, but everything he does is in translation. You know, this is these are texts that are widely available. But but he he goes back to those texts, and he essentially um, it's a combination of over literalizing the text 
and also just plain old making stuff up. So I have a problem with him on two levels. One is the way he'll filter uh, ancient material through his own you know, 20th and, you know, of course, 21st century technological context. So, you know, the, the text to describe an object, he'll, he'll say, well, it can't mean, you know, this, this simple thing that archaeologists say. It must be, again, some modern artifact, like a transistor or something like that. So he'll, he'll take texts and, and he'll filter them through a modern context, a foreign context. But my, my bigger gripe is that a lot of what he says just literally doesn't exist in the tablets. Uh, for instance, you know, if he, he'll, he'll talk about how the Anunnaki are an extraterrestrial race and they came here in spaceships and their home planet is Nibiru, a planet beyond Pluto and, and stuff like that. But there isn't a single, uh, you know, Akkadian Sumerian text anywhere that associates the Anunnaki with Nibiru. So he has a fundamental problem there. He, he literally just made up that connection. It just doesn't exist, and, and, and to try to you know, try to prove this, I mean, I don't want people just to say, "Oh, well, Heiser said it, so that must be correct." You know, he has a PhD, so we have to believe it. I don't like arguments from authority. So what I did on my SitchinIsWrong.com website, you know, I made a screen capture video of me going to the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature. Uh, if you go to that site, you can type in a uh, you know, a term from Sumerian or Akkadian, and, and so the, the video shows me typing that out the way a Sumerian scholar, you know, would transliterate uh, the term for Anunnaki. I, and I hit the button, and I get, you know, a little, little over a hundred results. These are all the places where the Anunnaki are specifically mentioned in Sumerian Akkadian tablets. And then, with those results, you can click on the little TR, which means translation. And you get it in English translation. So I, I, I did that, and I, and I challenged people on my website to say, look, don't trust Mike. Go to the site, mimic the search, and then look through all of the occurrences of Anunnaki. You will find that they're never described in connection with Nibiru. They're never described as traveling anywhere, you know, to Earth from anywhere else. They're, they're never described, you know, as as these Again, beings from outer space, you know, planets beyond, you know, the known planet Saturn. I mean, the, the Sumerians didn't even know uh, of, of planets beyond Saturn because it's naked eye astronomy, neither did any other ancient culture. And we get that from their own text. There are Sumerian astrolabes, lots of, actually, a, a ton of astronomical material from uh, Mesopotamia. And in none of those texts will you ever find a planet beyond Saturn, again, because it's naked eye astronomy. So you have all these fundamental disconnects. I mean, that, those, that's just two or three examples of what Sitchin is saying. And so I more or less just point at the obvious. Look, why would you believe this guy if these fundamental ideas to his system literally are not in the tablets? He can't give me, he couldn't, of course he's deceased now, but he couldn't give me a line and a tablet number so that I could check up on him and verify what he's saying because they literally aren't there. And I think that's really important because a lot of people think that, oh, you know, Heiser just wants to quibble with Sitchin about translations. Hey, you can't translate what isn't even there. You know, so the, the, the problem is, is much more significant 
than, you know, two people, again, quibbling about translations. I'm saying, and, and, and how easy would it be to falsify what I'm saying if it was not true? I'm saying there there isn't a line, a tablet, with, again, these fundamental ideas, fundamental to his extraterrestrial worldview uh, that he's offering his readers. That, that It just isn't there. It's a fabrication on that level. So that, that's the part that kind of blew my mind, that when I first, I mean, I've heard about the ancient alien thing for most of my life in some way, shape, or form, or, you know, crystals from Atlantis or whatever. And I had heard that, um, what's the phrase, those from above descend, is that the translation they always say? Well, that, that's the translation that, it's one of the translations Sitchin, you know, offers for Anunnaki. It's, it's not something you'd find if you looked it up in the Sumerian lexicon, but so that's so, that's what I mean. Yes and no. <laughs> that's what I mean. So those uh, whatever you call it, the phonemes, the the wedges on block. There's it doesn't say anything like those from above. Like Anunnaki is from what I was looking like some kind of that means like the son of or something. Like Anu is like a, a well, you know. like the Pen- the the Pennsylvania Sumerian Dictionary will will translate it as princely seed. Oh, okay. Um, and and so so there's this. It's not, it's not that you can really get a, a literalized sons of whatever, um, because Anu, of course, you know, is, is a reference to heaven. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a little hard to break down because, on the one hand, the the Anunnaki are second tier uh, deities, at least in in some in, in early Mesopotamian texts, they are, they are sort of second generation deities. And so they have a, they occupy sort of a high level in, in, in the pantheon. And they would be, again, quote unquote, offspring of the higher gods. Okay, so that, that's where you get this princely seed idea. In later uh, Mesopotamian texts, they, they get demoted. Uh, they, they are a, they're basically in charge of the underworld, you know, the realm of the dead. And, you know, we, we don't know why, because again, we don't have, you know, tablets that would tell us why, if, you know, presuming that the Mesopotamians ever wrote about why. Uh, we, we just don't have that material, but there, it's an uneven portrait uh, in in the Mesopotamian material. But, you know, like he'll, I don't know, Sitchin comes up with some real unusual uh, translations, again, that this, they who from heaven came, because you know, he, he wants to get the reader thinking about uh, beings arriving on spaceships, and so that that quote unquote translation sort of predisposes the mind uh, to accept what he's going to say after that. Yeah, that's the part that threw me is hearing that that doesn't translate. You know, essentially that's not what the word means. My first kind of realization is I was reading when I was in college. We read the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I don't remember which translation it was off the top of my head, but I had already been aware of the ancient astronaut theory, and they had use that book as an example but reading the translation i read i'm like there's there's nothing in here about like everything they told me from these like no this is a ancient guy meets his weird half man thing in the woods they run around like none of this there's no aliens in this and my eyes started to get open and then i watched that ancient aliens debunked i was like oh this is all this is just built on sand there's nothing here yeah the 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 documentary really does a good job i think of 
you know, I, it, it's one thing to just, you know, debunk and offer alternative explanations, you know, but, but the, the documentary is so much more than that because it really shows you how deceptively uh, the ancient alien guys uh, will, you know, handle, handle data, how they will bias the viewer, how they won't tell you certain things about the data they're even using. And, of course, I, I'm, I'm somewhat jaded, so I'm almost inclined to say they didn't even know. Um, you know, the, the documentary is really, really well done. Uh, I think Chris did a, did a really good job on it because he, he, he really had an eye to saying, well, here's the data, and here's what you know, is being extrapolated from the data by the ancient alien side. Is this at all coherent? I mean, how many, how many you know, gaps have to be filled in you know, with, with sort of made-up connections to get from A to B? And, and, and the, the documentary really does a good job of showing how, how really badly in some cases, so some cases just, it's just unbelievable how much is added uh, to the actual you know, material. Uh, again, to get from point A to point B. Yeah, it's it's quite incredible. One of my favorite things, and this is what I kept bringing up when I first saw it, was the way he cut together, um, what's it, Giorgio Tsoukalos, that that um, that little pendant he wears of the ancient astronaut ship, and him saying, no, this is not a bird that exists in this area. And the, the documentary just cuts to this fish that looks exactly like his pin. I mean, it couldn't have been a better <laughs> representation of that fish from that area. And it's, oh... Oh, how wrong you are! Yeah, so, yeah. Right. I mean, you you have to you not only have to suspend you know disbelief, but you you, you can't you can't uh, accept what your own eyes you're seeing, you know, to uh, to be won over, you know, to to the position. It, it's it's really atrocious. I mean, it, there are all sorts of of levels you could talk about this. I mean, I I personally find it a bit offensive that you know we have to conclude that, that human beings. You know, were so utterly stupid that they, that they couldn't do, you know, things like you know, move a, a, a megalithic block. Uh, you know that, that we had to have aliens do that. You know that, that you know people just don't get any credit. You know, the, the ancients were were actually really really intelligent, and they were you know, they they applied their their knowledge their technology to the problems they had. You know, I mean, we look at. How, how do they move this block? How do they erect this this thing? And it, it's hard for us to, you know, to, to sort of conceptualize how that would be done because that isn't how we solve problems anymore. I mean, we are we are technologically beyond that, and so, you know, we have other means to do these tasks. And then, since we can't think of how someone without our means would do the same task, we conclude, oh, it must be alien. You know, it, it it's just it's fundamentally absurd, you know, on on that level. Um, you know, they they were capable of doing this. I, I used to I, I teach uh you know periodically. I haven't done it for a few years, but uh, at, at the local university uh, in town here, there's an Egyptology class that I've taught twice. And I go in the first day and I say, look, you know, let's be honest with each other, you know. It, you're all, you're all history majors, but you're taking this because you need the credits, you know, and a, and a lot of this stuff, you know, you, yeah, you're going to find it interesting, but you're not going to remember it, you know, a year from now and so on and so forth, and I get it. I said, but this one day, you must be here in class because this is the day that you will never forget for the rest of your life. 
And, and what I do on that day is I show them the video of Wally Wallington. Do you know who Wally Wallington I was gonna, is? Is that the, the man who moves monuments? Yeah, he's the guy in yeah. Flint, Michigan that built the, a miniature Stonehenge in 25,000-pound blocks in his backyard. Brilliant. Yeah. You know, without without modern tools and, you know, without the wheel and stuff like this. I, and I, I tell him, I said, and I play it. I, I, I spend the whole hour on it because, you know, I bought Wally's disc for $15 and, and I've been through it four or five times, and every time I, I put it in, I'm just—it's it, just as fascinating as the first time. Because when you see him do what he does, the, the thought that sticks with you is, "This is so simple. How did I not think of this?" Exactly. And the reason you didn't think of it is because you're not someone who really is thinking about applied physics. You know, all, all Wallington needs to do is you know, put put a you know a small object, you know, underneath his twenty five thousand pound megalith, and then it's just weight and counterweight. It, how he gets the thing, you know, to from one end of his yard to the other. It, that that's all it is. He doesn't have to work at it because he uses other weight to lift the weight that he's trying to move. And again, you see it, and you just can't believe how simple this is. You know, until you actually see it in front of your face. And, and so I, I use that as an illustration and say, look, I don't know if, if the ancient Egyptians or anybody else used Wally's methods, but I want you to see that human beings are capable, you know, with very, quote-unquote, primitive technology. They're capable of doing these tasks, and they're a lot more clever, you know, than, than you give them credit for. You don't need aliens to do this. And the great thing about Wallington, what he does, is it's scalable. It's just one guy. You know, if you have a work crew of a hundred or a thousand using the same techniques, you know, working together, you, you can build, you know, a whole lot more than what he has in his backyard. So, again, when you, I, I just find it sort of fundamentally, you know, silly, and again, even insulting that that we look at at our at our ancestors, you know, and we think, you know, gosh, it, it, thank thank goodness, you know, we're just not as stupid as they were. You know, that they, they just needed aliens to do all this stuff. And, and they just didn't. They, 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 need, they need to get some you know, credit where, where it's deserved. Yeah, that's part of the thing that I found annoying about the ancient alien stuff. Now, I never bought it wholesale, but I, I thought it had a little bit more validity than it actually does, you know, until I started to look, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. But I found it annoying how much I always felt like I was lied to. Like, I can't cite directly who said it, but I remember people telling me that there's no Egyptian hieroglyph for sled. There's no hieroglyph to show them building these things. And, it's, and then I watched this other documentary at some point, and they show me multiple hieroglyphs of people with ropes with a monument on a sled. And recently I saw this story about them, how they basically figured out the water, that if you pour water in front of a sled on sand... Yeah. It lowers the friction level by enough that you need, you know, I don't know, like a hundred people to pull a fifty right. ton, and it's right there. It's like right. it, I felt lied to, like I as I would have liked to known that non alien thing, but no one told me this because I was too busy watching that. Well, you, one of the fun, one of the real problems here is that a lot of a lot of the really good research on this never filters down to the average person. And that's because scholars write it, you know, as part of a of the peer review process. Now, you know, I, I don't want to say that scholars shouldn't do that because they should. 
But a lot of that really needs to be given to the public. I'm a big believer that scholars you know, should serve the public interest. And, and oftentimes, frankly, it just never happens because when scholars do their research and they publish in technical journals, uh, they're publishing for the guild, they're publishing for their peers, they're publishing for their colleagues, they're publishing to get tenure. And, and, and they're writing for other experts to validate their own expertise. That material is not freely available. You know, 90, 95% of what is published in peer-reviewed journals is not accessible on the internet. You know, you have to have, you know, be a uh, student at an institution, you know, your institution has to have a license to the databases that you can tap into that literature, and it has to be available in PDF. Well, I, I mean, I, I have those licenses because, you know, I'm still a teaching adjunct at different places and whatnot. So, it, to me, it, it's just hilarious when I hear somebody on a talk show say, well, you know, scholars are just mystified, you know, by how this, you know, site was built. And it's like, no, they're actually not. I can pull up 30 articles now on how that was done. But the problem is that the you know 99% of the people listening to you say that nonsense will never see this, and and I can't just put it out on the web because it's it's an infringement of you know copyright and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it it's just there's this huge disconnect between what scholars write and what they read and what they talk about. You know, in the guild within the guild, and what non-specialists, people who either have expertise in other fields or they're just, you know, the normal, you know, person going about their life, you know, they're not in, you know, the, sort of the white-collar university academia kind of circuit. They're just, you know, doing normal things. They never see it. And and so that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I try to produce some of that or at least distill some of that information and where I can, you know, link to it where it's available, uh, just just to show people that, look, you know, this material does exist. It's not the mystery that Giorgio is telling you it is. You know, scholars are not astonished by this and, and dumbfounded into, into mute silence. Uh, they've actually spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this. And so, you know, here it is. You know, a good illustration is, you know, like medical stuff or, or climate science or something like that because, you know, Newsweek might do something on, you know, genes and your destiny. And and, and the Newsweek guy writing it is probably not a scientist, but even if he is, he's got a word count that he has to observe and his article is only going to hit the basics of someone else's research. But that's what the person in the grocery line reads and they only get a surface treatment of an issue, they're not going to go look at the journal article in the Journal of the American Medical Association and see that, well, you know, a lot of people really don't believe that, that, that genes determine destiny. They're, they're, they're part of it, but there's also environmental. Because that isn't what it made it into the Newsweek article. But if you actually go look at the journals and the people who are really doing the research, it's just a whole lot more complicated. But, but who does that? And, and if you go to the humanities, you know, <laughs> It's even, you know, more compounded because a lot of this stuff is fairly esoteric. You know, at least that's one thing Ancient Aliens has done. That it sort of put ancient studies in the mainstream, granted in, a, in an albeit terrible way. But, you know, at least people are, are interested. But again, what do they do? To find out more information, oh, I'll go to the History Channel website, or I'll go listen to Coast to Coast now, or I'll, you know, go out to the Internet. And, and, and they never get to 
the real research, the real you know stuff that's being bantied about within the guild. It just, they just never get there. Yeah. It's not available. Yeah, and there's this distrust culture that goes on too within the kind of skeptical, not the skeptical, the um, oh, I don't even know how how to word them. Well, I'll give you the anecdote I was thinking of. So somebody was pointed out the shocking evidence of UFOs and uh, paintings, you know, which has been done to death, you know, the one I'm referencing. And I told the fellow that I'm like, oh, you know what? I'd heard that that's actually a known motif. Uh, here's a website. I actually think I showed him the debunked website because he had a bunch, of, you know, there's a bunch of really nice citations of what that actually means. And his response before reading it is, oh, that just looks like a bunch of normal skeptical stuff. I'm like, oh, skeptical's a bad word now. No, that's the right. way we're supposed to be. And it's like, oh, no. It's, and it goes to that. Yeah, in order to do the research, like I'm giving a filtered research to do the actual proper, you know, next level up is what you're saying. I need access to journals and, you know, deep yeah. thought stuff. And yeah, frankly, I mean, I'm interested in this, but I'm not, you know, deep 50 page treatises on individual hieroglyphs into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, scholars will spend an amazing amount of space on the most minute, mind-numbing kind oh, yeah. of thing. But, you know, sometimes that's that's exactly what you need, believe it or not. I mean, sometimes that's really valuable that someone, you know, cared to, you know, I care so much about ancient handwriting that I looked up, you know, the way that every scribe in the Dead Sea Scrolls writes this letter, and I'm going to, you know, re I'm going to reproduce that in facsimile here in this article. So you can look at all of them, and then we're going to talk about the little curvature of, of the line at the top on this letter and how sometimes it trails off and other times it doesn't. Like, really? Well, yeah, really. I mean, I have those articles. <laughs> there are people who, who just obsess over that, and, and sometimes it matters when they're discussing, you know, some epigraph somewhere, but, you know, most of the time that people would look at that and go, man, you just need to be institutionalized <laughs> or something. Well, that's why I think people like yourself are great for, for us, like the, the ones, you know, the, the lay people is you can translate from that level to basically filter through that stuff for us a little bit. And if I, if we want to research, you give me all the opportunity to, but frankly, I, I'm not going to believe you wholesale, but oh, that sounds reasonable. I thank you for putting into modern, you know, uh, regular person parlance, like a, um, like a Michio Kaku or a Brian Green, where yeah. it's, I could probably figure out that physics, but I, that's a lot of work and I'm really glad someone else is doing it. And thank you for explaining it to me. Uh, and I really appreciate it. That's why I like reading your stuff or, or Michio Kaku or even, uh, uh, Stephen Hawking's. Like, I love the brief history of the universe, brief history of time, whatever that was called, but I certainly couldn't do a physics equation for you. Right. You know, a lot of it, I think, you know, scholars would really serve the public well if they, just what you're describing, you know, summarize an issue, tell me why people, you know, wh why the consensus is what it is, why do people land here, do, do they land anywhere else, you know, give me a hint of that, and then give me the breadcrumb trail. If I care, then I can check up on you, and, you know, I can I can get to some of these other sources where, where people are really, who are experts in the fields are really, you know, having the, you know, a knockdown, drag-out fight over this, and then I can get to really you know, what, what they're actually talking about and, and where the sticking points are, where the, where the impasses are. You know, and that, that is something I view as something I can do 
you know, at least provide people with the breadcrumb trail. But if you want to look at this, here, here's where you look at it. I, I can get you to some of the material. And, you know, hopefully that will be adequate, you know, for, for most people. If it's not, you know, that, I have people email me a lot and I, and I do send, you know, people articles, you know, that I, that I have by email and things like that. It, 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 the publishers don't like if you post things online. But, you know, if it's just, you know, person to person, I mean, I, I'll do that if they're really interested. I, I've done that a number of times. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to provide a service there, but I can't, you know, I can't make it uh, as big as the World Wide Web, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I appreciate it because it makes my life a lot easier to deal with because I don't have to trust, well, untrustable sources. You know, it's, there's things that I, like the slide example, you know, I, it wouldn't even occur to me to question that because I'd heard it enough times that when I saw that the hierograph of the sled, I was just like, this is, I, it's one thing to get something wrong, but it's another thing to just, you've just made it up and lied to me. And that's, yeah, yeah that changes like the fun aspect. Like I still find ancient aliens amusing, but I'm not going to watch the show. I mean, but the, the concept's amusing, but it, ugh, they, there's a lot of, yeah, whatever. Just, we well, all know this. Even, the evidence even is a crap. simple, <laughs> even a simple logical you know, thought process about it. Okay, if I knew, you know, if, if science had produced evidence that there are intelligent extraterrestrials out there, let, let's just say tomorrow we wake up and NASA says, hey, we've got the smoking gun here, there's no other way to explain this, everything checks out. You know, there, let's just say Mars was, was, you know, once inhabited. Okay, well, that puts, that puts the alien issue on the table. But it can't get to the table until we have that. You know, then the next question is, well, is there proof they ever came here? I mean, we, you know, we, we have to actually have that data as opposed to just connecting those dots and, and, and we have, we, we take correlation and then we move to causation without actual data that support that. So they're just simple, you know, logical things that, you know, I often tell, you know, I get in these conversations about UFOs, like, look, I, I would love to know, and I would love there to be this kind of proof, you know, for intelligent extraterrestrial life, because I just think it would be cool. I mean, you know, assuming that they're not here to kill us and all that kind of, I mean, that, I think it would just be neat, but I can't use an unknown, okay, well, here's this, here's this crop circle out there. I, we don't know who made it or how it was made, but I'm going to take that unknown and now I'm going to use that as proof for another unknown. You know, there, there's alien races out there. Well, how can you use an unknown to prove an unknown? It, it just doesn't make any sense fundamentally. I mean, it just violates, you know, anything, you know, logically coherent that you, you'd want to say. I mean, you, you have to have, have at least something to hang your hat on here. So if we did, you know, have that knowledge, well, then we can start talking about, well, if there are aliens, maybe one of them came here or something. Then it becomes an intelligent discussion or, or an intelligible discussion. But just to sort of look at this thing that, hey, there's this drawing here, and I don't know what it is, so that means it must be aliens. It's just absurd, just, just on a purely logical level, regardless of whether there's, you know, evidence being fabricated or were hidden away, you know, like, like in your example. Yeah, the the interesting point there, too, is I've never really figured out, and I, I don't think there there's a reason for it, is why aliens, and I'm using that term, you know, loosely to describe the term, are from outer space. Now, I'm not saying I have another <laughs> option, but I don't know where we came up with that. Like, it just, 
oh, well, they must be from outer space. Shrug your shoulders. But I don't remember hearing other than channeled information, which I'm not going to remotely <laughs> take. I don't remember them picking somebody up and going, hi, we're from here. Uh, here's your probe. It's an interesting yeah, jump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is. If, if you actually go back into, you know, the, the, the mid to late 19th century, um, which is where a lot of this originates uh, in terms of literature, and I'm talking about uh, horror stories, and as, as time goes on, what we, what we would call legitimately science fiction. You'll actually get uh, other other points of origin. You'll have you know you'll have these subterrestrials. You know the, 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 these other beings. You know live underground. The hollow earth. The whole all hollow earth stuff. You know is is fodder uh, for this kind of thing. You know, or the oceans, or something like that. So it's these places that we don't live. So therefore, beings that are not us must live in those places that we don't live. It was only really when we when we started to get into flight, and you know, it got serious. You know, really, you know, with with astronomy, you know, like the, the so-called canals on Mars. I mean, that was a big catalyst to the to the you know. The, the others, you know, other other intelligent life forms must come from Mars, must come from space, because look, we found canals there. You know, of course, we all know the, the failed history of that idea. But you know, it, it's this sense of of the other must live in places where we don't. And so, you know, you'll you'll get you know this kind of thinking in again late 19th century, early 20th century uh, fiction, especially. And then it sort of morphs, you know, it sort of takes off in one direction uh, because of our own technology. You know, we, we, we use our own uh, techno technological uh, achievements to sort of think about, again, those beings that are not us. You know, now we can get into the sky. We can get into, you know, space. Well, they're, they're not, they must be beyond that. They're deeper into space, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So it, we, we in part sort of, you know, manufacture some of this, or at least if if manufacture is, is a harsh term, I, I think it's an appropriate term for this topic. But I don't want it to make it. I don't want to make it sound sinister. But it, it's sort of a natural uh, impulse, you know, to if we're looking for a higher intelligence and we're not going to call that God, we're going to call it something else. Then we're pretty limited in our options, at least that we know about. As to where that thing might come from, uh, when we, you know, we, when physicists started getting into, you know, other dimensions, and you know, we had the overturning of the Newtonian apple cart. You know, well, then you started to hear about, you know, beings from other dimensions or beings, you know, beings that could, you know, travel through wormholes and you know, defeat the the space-time problem and all that kind of stuff. So it sort of morphs, you know, with our own. Uh, our own technology, our own our own knowledge uh, as to how we process uh, intelligences you know that are that are greater than us. Yeah, like so they... I, I, don't, I don't I don't think it's a mystery, but it, it's it's a real it's actually kind of fascinating, you know, because of the the creativity that that, that goes into it. But I don't mind that. What what I do mind is presenting it as as sort of known factual material that. You know, is being suppressed, and we're all being lied to by the scientific community. And you know, and, and here we have you know guys like Giorgio come along that really just, frankly, don't know a whole lot about anything he he talks about, uh, and and presents this as 
sort of, well, this is so obvious that, you know, to, to not see it must mean that you're deliberately not looking or you deliberately want to conspire to keep this from the public. I mean, that that's just irresponsible. Yeah, it's a weird jump. Like, I, I was, I had heard about years ago the, um, the night paralysis, succubus, incubus stuff, which mm-hmm. sounds to me very much like alien abduction. You're frozen in your bed, weird thing comes through the window, but back in the, whatever, 1500s, that's some demon, and then in the 1990s, it's gray aliens. It's, yeah, it's the, it's just we're seeing through the veil of whatever, kind of what we're comfortable with at that moment. Like, there was the ghost airships or whatever back in the pre-dirigible days. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, it's interesting that there's this thing, but yeah, it's kind of, we're viewing it through, you know, whatever we're comfortable with, whatever, you know, the archetype. Well, I, the, that's actually an interesting example because it, it's a good segue to the whole religious component uh, that, that's sort of involved in this. And, 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 and that, that sort of runs through all of this stuff. Uh, I mean, I've, I've given lectures on, you know, certain, certain paths, like Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God, the daughters of men, and all that stuff. You know, and, and, I, and I've made statements in lectures like, you know, now, now for us, you know, in, in, the, in the 20th, 21st centuries, you know, we look at this and we we could read these words and we could process this, you know, as alien abduction because we've heard of that thing. We've heard of this quote-unquote, you know, phenomenon. And then if you go back, you know, you have the incubus and succubus things, and we could look at that. That's that's more recent than, than a biblical passage. You know, it's you know early modern period. But we could look at that and say, well, that must have been aliens. You know, the Bible must have been aliens. That stuff must have been aliens. You know, we, we, we use our own circumstance as a filter for processing a text that's either ancient or even one that's just a few hundred years old. And and that's just a, that's sort of a normal impulse. And people hear that. And I, I know, like, in, in in the circles that I'm familiar with, you know, religiously, people, uh, you know, will, will, will hear me say that. But, and then they don't hear me say, you know, I'm not saying this is what it is. I'm trying to explain to you how this passage could be read today and why. But they latch on to that. And in many cases, they, they latch on to that because they feel that it legitimizes a quote-unquote literal approach to the Bible. And, and they assign such importance to this literal method of interpretation, whatever literal means. They never really get into that question. But that sort of validates for some people um, the, the meaning of the Bible or the legitimacy of the Bible or the inspiration of the Bible. That you know, we, we, we have, if alien abduction is real, then that's going to prove the Bible. I mean, it, it's a skewered, really strange kind of logic. But for some, it takes on importance because of some faith element that they have. Again, it, which, which again is, is is a very odd trajectory, but you can sort of see why people would assign importance to it if that is sort of the intellectual endpoint, and that happens a lot. Yeah, I've heard the argument from <clears throat> not just the argument, but what you're saying through you know, the modern eyes seeing it this way, and then viewing backwards, you know, a 21st century mind trying to think in the way of a you know pre pre common era. Uh, thinking pattern going the other way as well, where I've heard, um, devout and, um, I guess literalist is the best term I can use. The 6,000 year old earth people, um, saying that, yeah, yeah, saying that aliens are demons. And that's so thinking from the other way of using their view, you know, the 
literal every word, you know, dot and jot version of the Bible saying, oh, well, those are the demons that were referenced or those are the, to use the very heavily buzzed word, those are the Nephilim or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it when, when we, when we assign, again, when, when we link those two things, you know, and what I, what I, what I try to tell people is, look, you know, you, you, you can't create these one-to-one linkages because what, what, what you're setting yourself up for is, let, let's say tomorrow we wake up and we find out, hey, there are no other aliens. You know, they, they're, we are alone in the universe. Well, does that mean that, that, that now your, your Bible is erroneous at this point because you've, you've interpreted extraterrestrials as being demons. So now we, we can't have demons either. So you, you really lost big time. You know, again, by, by creating this linkage, and now that's just really off the table. And so, this happens a lot with, with, again, over-literalizing, uh, you know, text, because they, they, they tend to, you know, when, when they live or die, they tend to take all their baggage with them. <laughs> no. You know, they, they, you, you marry them to too many things, and, and I, you know, I just, you know, try to people, look, try to tell people, look, you, you, you really can't do this because, you know, it, it you're setting yourself up for a huge disappointment at some point. You make it easy, you know, for someone to, you know, uh, attack your faith on, on some other point. So, you know, but uh, to be honest with you, a lot of people just don't listen to me, you know, when, <laughs> <laughs> when I tell them that. Because I, I think the, the best thing to do with, with all of this, like, like let's just say creation text in, in Genesis 1 and 2, I think it's it's patently obvious that, you know, the, the biblical writers were pre-scientific. I mean, there's no word in biblical Hebrew for brain, for instance. Um, it, it's not that the Israelites didn't know we had brains, it's just that they, you know, they, they didn't know that the seat of our emotions ultimately is the brain. I mean, yes, there's psychosomatic stuff going on, we all know that, but they'll assign, you know, emotions and intelligence and whatnot to the heart or to the, to the intestines, to the kidneys or something like that, because they they felt certain ways when they experienced certain emotions or when they had to make decisions or when they thought about something or other, but they didn't have brain science. So it's, it's a very it's it's a very normative way to look at again what what the seat of the intellect and the emotions you know are if you're pre scientific. So if they're pre scientific there, you know wh- why would we think that they had an understanding of quantum physics and the Big Bang and all this kind of stuff? It, it's just absurd. So that in a religious context, I would I would say it this way: Look, you know, if you if you believe that God actually prompted people to write the biblical text, let's give God some credit. Okay, God decides what time you know in the history of humanity He wants this thing written down, and He inter- intersects Himself in time, and He and He chooses people living in the second millennium BC, and He knows that they don't know a whole lot of stuff about science. But he doesn't really care because he's deciding to pick them to communicate certain ideas that he wants written down and stored away for posterity. And those ideas are, are important. Okay, there's, a, there's a God, I'm out here, you know, there's a creator, I created this stuff. He doesn't really tell them how he did it because, frankly, if God had that discussion, it would go over their heads. If he had that discussion today, it would go over our heads, okay, because he's God, all right? So, you know, God's making these decisions. and You know what? I'm not going to care if you're pre-scientific. Just tell them I'm out here. Tell them who made this stuff. Tell them who made you. Tell them you're responsible to me. Tell them I love you. Tell them, I, you know, I, I know what, what the human condition is about. 
and I want to make the way of salvation and whatnot. And, and, and a primitive person is perfectly capable of telling his own audience those things. And if we understand that that was the aim of the communication, we, living two millennia later, can read those texts and get the same message. In other words, God knew what he was getting, and that was good enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, but in, instead, you know, the, the young earth crowd has to come up with these, these really, and frankly, some of the old earthers do it too, you know, these really weird ways of, of interpreting scripture that, oh, all of a sudden Genesis 1, 1 to 3 is about quantum physics. Well, oh, I didn't know that. Well, these are the biblical writers. You know, that it, you know it, 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 it just really, again, I think is, is having a firm grasp on the obvious that, you know, again, God knew what he was getting. It's perfectly acceptable. The Bible isn't about teaching us science. It's about teaching us, again, you know, these bigger ideas. And they're perfectly capable of doing that in their own language, their own symbology, their own perspective, their own life experience, their own cognitive frame of reference, you know, however lofty we want to talk about this. Um, they're perfectly capable of doing that. If it all started today, we would be perfectly capable of doing it too. And 2,000 years you know, hence from our time, people would be looking back on what we wrote and saying, boy, those were scientific idiots, weren't they? You know, that, you know they, we would be judged the same way because of the leaps and bounds you know, that, that science will have discovered you know, 2,000 years from now. Yeah. But the whole exercise is just, is just absurd to me. But again, when I, when I go into a, you know, a Christian setting or a church or some other gathering and say that, I mean, I make enemies. You know, and I'm saying, look, I'm on your side. You know, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to help you think better about this material and, and let it be what it is. Just let it be what it is. Don't try to make it something it's not, because you're going to come out with all sorts of weird, wacky interpretations and, and faith statements and, and beliefs and doctrines that, that just really are detached from what the writer himself would have thought. He's not capable of thinking about what he wrote the way you're thinking about it, because you live 2,000 years later. It's just a fundamental disconnect. But you know, like I said, some people understand that. They think about it. Well, that's kind of reasonable. Other people are like, you know, well, you're just, you know, you're a heretic. You know, let's just pick up stones and start throwing stones at Heiser and all this kind of stuff. But you know, whatever. It, it, it is what it is. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to be useful. That's all. That's all I'm about. I, just, I want to help you think well about this particular thing, and again, give you the breadcrumb trail, and then I'll go away. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be periodically useful in, in what I do. What I find interesting about the, the young earth creationist argument is, I mean, it's, and I'm, you know, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but it, it seems to be that at least the Hebraic tradition I'm familiar with, they teach in, you know, parables, metaphors. That's, seems to be what happens. And then Jesus shows up, he does the same thing. There's this disconnect with me of why would you take that book as completely literal then and count up the ages of everybody they listed? <laughs> It just, oh, I, I, that, I don't understand that jump in logic, or I mean, I guess there is no logic there. It just doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. It's obviously metaphorical. Well, it, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it, the, the whole ages thing. I mean, there, there are examples, again, Mesopotamian context, you know, the Sumerian kinglet, there's, there's real, real close parallels to, to Genesis 5, and, and they're, there appears to be, I mean, nobody's really won the day here as, as far as scholarly attempts to figure this out, but there appears to be a mathematical cipher to the numbers. 
And there are some people who've been really close at, at sort of accounting for everything, but again, nobody's won the day. But the, the fact that you can do it, that, that you, can, you can approach the text this way and come up with a mathematical cipher and then ask the question, well, well what would these numbers in their, in their system and in, in, their, in their mathematical knowledge, what, what abstract ideas do these things convey? And, and, and there are definite abstract ideas that these things convey, that they tell us in their text. And why, why not approach Genesis 5 like that? Well, because that's not literal. You know, we can't do that. You know, again, it, there's, there's just this logical gap between what an ancient person would feel very free to consider and, and offer as a reading of a passage and what lots of you know, Jews and Christians today would, would tolerate. I mean, there, there, there's a great gulf there. Uh, between you know what what people would put up with or not. Now in that that same vein, I, I've heard and again. I'm not going to source it because well, I'm a layperson. I just watch random stuff. But uh, that the ages reference, like uh, Methuselah lives to 900 something, Adam lives to nine whatever. That that's a more of a translation issue. Now you're someone that can read stuff from close to when they wrote it down. Is that possible, or do they were they were they saying? 900 years as I understand it, or is this a... No, they're, 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 they're straightforward numbers, oh, okay. again, but let me give you one example. Like Enoch, when e Enoch never dies, you know, he, in, in the biblical narrative, he's just taken by God. Okay, so that must be an alien abduction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But, but, so he doesn't have a, a, a definite, you know, death point uh, in Genesis, but his, his numerical age is 365. And so people have looked at that, and there are other numbers, you know, in, in the whole Genesis account, and say, well, you know, 365, that's the, the number of days in a year. You know, is there, is there anything to that? You know, and there, while, while, they're, while the numbers are what they are in translation, again, taking them at face value, are there mathematical reasons why a particular number is what it is? And... Is there is there a mathematical way that they sort of work together, and you know whether they're grouped in units of twos or groups of threes or whatever? You know that people have tried all sorts of things, and again, come out with some pretty pretty fascinating you know ways to parse this. But the, the fact is that you know people just don't nowadays don't consider that because we don't we don't treat numbers that way. That's mystical, or you know put some other adjective on it. But you know, back to your question. Yeah, the numbers are what they are. There, there are different differences in manuscripts. I mean, you will get differences in, in some of the numbers depending on the, uh, on the textual tradition that, that you refer to. But you know, they, the numbers are what they are. The real issue in scholarship is, do they mean something? Are they deliberate? Are they intentional? Are they intelligent? Is there messaging behind the individual numbers and their relationships to each other as a group? Okay, yeah, so it is, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's hard to describe, but I get what you're saying. It's, to their some, brain, some it's numbers, not... You, you might be thinking of a number like 70, okay? Now, you know, 70 and 40 is a big one in the Bible, and 7 is is another one. Um, is it just a coincidence that Saul, David, and Solomon, the first, you know, three kings of the Israelite monarchy, they all reigned exactly 40 years? But really... That just seems a little too coincidental, you know. And based upon the way forty is used elsewhere to speak of a generation, maybe that's just the point. You know, 
David lived a long life, and you know he he, he lived a you know he, he he reigned as king, and so did Saul, so did Solomon, and so we're using the number forty to telegraph the fact that hey, you know they they had a a, a good long reign or something like that, good or bad. You know who knows? You know it it you know ultimately it, it could work either way with a number like forty because it's small enough, but. 40 and 70 and 7 are used uh, abstractly and symbolically in other in, in some passages where it's quite clear. So the question is, well, should we look at those numbers in other passages the same way or should we just presume they're literal? And again, people have gone both ways and tried you know, to, to come up with a definitive answer on, on these sorts of things a lot. But there, there's, there's a certain elasticity in that respect to the numbers. Yeah, that makes sense from the little I know about you know, the Jewish Kabbalah and that sort of thing, where numbers and letters overlap and the various letter combinations can be added to mean something else. And I could definitely see how... Like, like uh, 666 is a, is a very obvious uh, gematria. Um, you know, gematria is where a, a a letter of the alphabet will have a corresponding number and then, you you know, you can you can spell a, a, a name or, or a word and then it has a numerical, you know, tally to it. And it works, you know, both directions. But but John in the book of Revelation tells you, he says, you know that that uh, you know this is the number of the beast, you know, uh, you know six six six. He gives you the number, so the secret isn't the number. But he he asks in the, in, in the passage, you know, that he says, you know, what does the number mean? He he lays that question out, and and so it's sort of an invitation to okay. It has some symbolic value, so what might that be? And one of the approaches to that is is gematria. Does six 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 spell anything? Well, and it does. You know, depending on what alphabet you're using, depending on how you spell. You know, there's there's different spelling techniques in ancient languages, different vocalization schemes, and people play with this all the time. And in in that instance, you know, there's something to it uh, because John, of the way John sort of just lays it out there. You know, he that has understanding, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, you're supposed to try to figure it out. He's giving you the number. You don't need to guess at the number. You're supposed to guess at what it means. Yeah, and that's, the, I've, from what I've heard from people that study this, it's, it's a reference to Nero? Yeah, N- Nero works with, with 666, and Nero also works with, uh, there's a textual variant uh, that, that produces the number 616, and depending on, on how you spell Nero, whether you use his first or last name, or you know, again, hit the hit the full or short form of his name, you, you can you can come up with both numbers, which is kind of interesting, uh, you know, for Nero. So a lot of people do think that Nero is behind the number. There there are other you know views of that. For instance, six 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 is uh is also a magic square, which for people who do Sudoku, they they sort of know what a magic square is, where there, there's there's a known there was a known magic square in antiquity where the sides you know, each you know top to bottom and then you know horizontally each each line of the square totaled up to 111. So you have four sides and then you have the two diagonals for 111. So you have 666. You've got six you know, rows to account for, and that was the magic square for the deity Zeus, which has important connections both in the New Testament back into the Old Testament with with Baal. And again, it, it's a very, it was a very well-known uh, symbol for, you know, essentially, you know, the devil or Satan or the, or, or the 
big bad enemy who's Lord of the Dead, you know, like that kind of thing. So is is that what John was tracking on, or is it Nero? Well, you know, you can make a good argument, you know, in either case, uh, because mathematically, just depending on how you approach it, you can come up with something that's pretty coherent uh, on its own terms, on its own ancient terms. Yeah, the rest of that one that I'd heard was that the the seven-headed serpent, that's Rome's seven hills. Uh, for the, in the rest yeah. of the document, is is that a valid thing? Or is, again, it's hard for me to tell because a lot of this is yeah, filtered I, I, through. Yeah. I, I tend to dismiss a, a lot of the the interpretations that make. Let me put it this way: there there are some people who look for Rome connections to to beat on the Catholic Church. You know, like the mm. Catholic Church is the great whore and the great Satan and all this kind of stuff, and the Pope's the beast and the Antichrist and whatnot. I, I put very little credence in that. Uh, if you're looking at Rome as the first century enemy of both the Jews and the Christians, well then, yeah, there, there's something to that, because, hey, it was. <laughs> yeah, that was my yeah, thing. There's a little yeah. more to hang your hat on there. Yeah, they did kind of run in there and ruin their homeland quite a few times, so that's more my thinking of it, is that's the one that are, you know, completely screwing us over and making us poor and horrible. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very... It would be a very natural, you know, impulse. You know, not, you know, it's not a, it's not a perfect solution. There are problems with it, but it's a it's one of those approaches um, that gets on the table among scholars because it has a, a reasonable level of explanatory power. Um, you know, and, that, and again, there are others, and that's what scholars like to do. They like to you know, to debate the options. As new material, you know, comes to light, sometimes they're strengthened, sometimes they're not, sometimes it doesn't help at all. But that—that's the enterprise. That's the academic enterprise of trying to figure out what was what was the writer thinking at any given point. You know, on on that note, uh, since we're going for a bit, I just there's a few things, uh, just the Christian side of things, that almost ancient aliens in, the, in their uh, in their take of you know things seeming to get filtered is. I don't even know how to word this, but is there any validity to any of the kind of alternate Jesus theories? Like, um, in the years he's not in the gospel, he bounces off to India. Um, he survives the crucifixion. He's buried in India. He's buried in Japan. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. Is any of that have any footing or is this just kind of romantic Dan Brown stuff? Yeah, I, I, I would, I would be in the latter category. I mean, it, I would feel differently about it if you, if you had a really, if you had contemporary texts that sort of made these kinds of statements, but they all tend to be much later, uh, and some of them even what, what we would call modern, you know, the modern era. Uh, and so, you know, a, a lot of it is just, you know, really frankly, just pie in the sky, you know, kind of, you know, fodder. Because the, the, the other area is, is the missing years of Jesus, you know, childhood, you know, that, that sort of thing. Because you... He's born, and then you don't really hear about him until he's a teenager in the, in the temple and, and whatnot. So what what happened there? And, you know, there's all sorts of bizarre things about. Well, this is where Jesus was and what he was doing. And, you know, it, it since since there was a gap in the understanding, and since Jesus was such a an important figure, people speculated all the time. Uh, even even you know in, in antiquity they were speculating about this. Now it's centuries removed from even when the Gospels were written. So again, it, it, it's, it's pretty late. But I tend to think that a lot of this is, again, just, just speculation. I think most of it's harmless, too. Uh, when you get into the modern era, especially when you get like to India and whatnot, that sooner or later, 
uh, having Jesus in these places is going to it's going to connect itself to racial theory, uh, specifically Aryan you know racial theory, and so I'm a little more suspicious of the modern stuff that somebody's angling uh, for for something there that really really is not good. Yeah, but I think a lot of it is just harmless speculation. It tends to be what I thought. The only one that I took. I mean, not seriously, but I took it a little bit more seriously. Is the afraid there's a town in Ida that has his his shrine where they buried him. Um, that it's been a known shrine for you know plus a thousand years or whatever. I mean, it's again, I'm, I'm, I highly Wait, doubt it's anything. But in which kind? It's in Indi- kind? it's in India. I don't remember the name of the town, but it's a shrine that it's the burial place of Jesus. And then um, when the Muslims took over that area, they buried their own. Um, whatever you'd call a Muslim saint on top of the thing to kind of take it over. But there's a whole documentary on, um, and when I say documentary, I don't mean like ancient aliens, like a proper people thought about right. it, documentary on it that I watched. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know of any, any ancient tradition that has Jesus, you know, moving outside of, of, uh, Palestine, either, either during his life that the New Testament describes or after, you know, presuming that the New Testament was incorrect about the crucifixion. Yeah. Uh, and even, even, even if it was a post-resurrection, uh, you know, Christ, I don't know of any ancient text that has him, you know, moving that direction. You know, the, the Mormons, you know, kind of, you know, they have their own, you know, Jesus went to America, you yeah. know, kind of tradition as well. So I, I tend to, I tend to look at this one, you know, in, in somewhat the same way, even though you know they're, they're going to be centuries apart. But what what I would really want is something that you know is much more uh, tied you know to the context of the rest of Jesus' life and the rest of the material written about him. Yeah, the 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 Indian one, I, I think it, for me it makes sense just the way their their kind of deity system works. That they already have Krishna, they have Christ. You know, bringing Christ into kind of the pantheon. It's a pretty easy fit, so I could see how you that could, would be. You're yeah. right. You, you you could see that. I mean, you you could have someone who, you know, a thousand years ago said, you know, I'm I'm the reincarnation of Jesus, and he becomes a holy man and a good teacher and and whatnot. You know, he 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 is an, you know, he's a good example. He's not a he's not a huckster or a P.T. Barnum you know kind of guy. And then he's venerated, and he dies, and they bury him. You know, and they they could they could look at him as Jesus. That, that in that system, you're right. That that would make good sense, you know, to to just have that perspective because it does move Jesus into the pantheon, you know, as a as a divine being and and whatnot, or 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 a divinized man, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that 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 could make sense, you know, in that cultural context. Yeah, and then with the Jesus, and I don't want to say faking, but the Jesus survives the crucifixion. That there's been a bunch of theories, you know, he wasn't on the cross for too long, obviously he disappears from a cave. There's, I'm sure you've heard all these. Yeah. Is there anything to any of them? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's the crucified man who somehow is able to to roll away a stone and overpower a Roman guard. Yeah, so it's it's just <laughs> nonsense. Call, call, yeah. call Joss Whedon. I mean, that would be okay. a <laughs> yeah. uh, Avengers plot there, I yeah. guess. But, I mean, I figured as much, yeah. but it's worth an ask. I've heard, you know, it's it's such, it, obviously, it's, you know, the most important story in, you know, Western tradition, so you're obviously going to get a lot of weird variants springing up, but that one showed up so often, and in the text, he does die pretty quick, so I'm like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he, he does. I mean, they don't, have to, they don't have to break his legs, you know, 
but it, it's it's not like we have mathematical tables of of how long it took a crucif you know crucifixion victim to die. You know, That's like true. We could plot out the average the average uh, time it took or whatnot. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, they sure. You know, was Jesus? I mean, there, there's no way statistically or empirically is probably a better word to establish the fact that Jesus died quicker than anybody else, and then that cast a pall over that, you know, mm. that part of the story. There's, there's just, there's no way to argue that from any, any sort of data. Yeah, you know, it's just one of those things I've heard. Obviously, I've not crucified anybody sure. with a stopwatch. So, um, on the other, on that side too, and this is not in any way questioning the narrative. It's just something I've never understood, and you're the exact man to ask. I don't understand Jesus' last words. Not because it's in another language when it gets translated. The Lama Sabachthani, or I'm sure I pronounced that wrong and said it weird. You know, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? So, yeah, so they're, they're not they're not his very last words on the cross, but pretty close. Okay, yeah. Um, well, those are the ones that are confusing. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I, it just I, sounds a little. I think it's yeah. I think it's a genuine. Um, how do I want to say it? I think it's a genuine expression of of sadness and, and despair. Um, I mean, you know, theologians like like to sort of theologize the passage, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that there's no sense to this, but if, again, in, in biblical theology, you know, Jesus takes the sins of the world on, on himself, you know, and the whole notion, which is a biblical one, that, that God, you know, doesn't tolerate sin, well, yeah, okay, there's this separation that occurs, you know, sort of, you know, you know, this sort of abandonment theme that, you know, you're 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 no longer, you know, sort of you know part of, of, of the Trinity or however you want to express this, because now you're polluted, now you're contaminated. Because in biblical theology, this is this is the logic of the sacrificial system, that people became unclean and unfit for, for divine presence through a variety of means. And to us, they don't make any sense. But in, in their world, there's there's a rationale for all of them. But if, if that's the case, well, then what you have here would you know, happen with Jesus is he becomes profane. You know, he, he becomes something that can't, you know, be in the presence of God. And so there's, there's this separation and, you know, Jesus cries out because theologically, you know, he's never experienced this before because he's part of the Trinity who's been together from eternity. And now, you know, we have this separation and, you know, so yeah, a, a, a cry of despair. So if you're, if you're presuming all those points of biblical theology, then what he says on the cross, if they're viewed against that backdrop, makes sense because he is now, for the first time, alienated from God and feels forsaken because the, their their fellowship the, is broken. He is no longer part of the divine presence, or you know something like that. But again, there's a lot of there's a lot of theology sort of packed into that. That you know somebody like me can look at it and read those lines and sort of, again, process them against that backdrop. You know, could, you know, was all that sort of in the, in the, in the mind of the, the writer and the reader and whatnot? Well, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's hard to know what, what people, you know, what, what their theological level of literacy was in the first century. That's, that's sort of a moving target. But, again, for me, you know, I can look at it and say, well, that's probably why that was said. You know, in other words, it's not that Jesus was surprised that this has happened to him because elsewhere he says, I'm, I'm doing this voluntarily. 
you know, it, it has never been done. So you could say, well, didn't Jesus know what was going to happen? Well, he didn't know when he was going to return. I mean, the, and again, that, that's a theological issue too. Incarnation in biblical theology doesn't necessarily mean the loss uh, of divine attributes, but it does mean the 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 lack of their expression or the lack of of being able to exercise voluntarily in this case divine attributes and so Jesus isn't omniscient you know in, in the things that he you know experiences some of the questions he's asked and then the big one is you know you, you talk about going away and you talk about coming back when's that going to be he says hey only the father knows but when he's little he's got to learn to eat with a spoon he's got to learn to go potty he has to learn to talk you know he's, he's human okay, he's God become man again this is what biblical theology says and that brings with it limitations and so, well, yeah, I think Jesus could sort of see what was going to happen here. I'm going to become sin for everybody. But as far as, you know, what happens to him, you could make the argument that it's unprecedented. And it is, because it never happened before. So, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to approach it. And and it's one of those statements that, on the surface, sounds really odd or misplaced or almost almost nonsensical. But, again, if, if viewed through, again, certain points of biblical theology, uh, you can see why he would have said that. Um, but, again, that, that's probably a long, convoluted way to, no, I, I, to talk about that. No, I very much appreciated the long, convoluted way. I followed you, and that made sense to me. Because I'm thinking about it as as a uh, you know, non-Christian and a, basically just thinking as far as narrative story. And it's like, oh, he, he, he lost his faith at the end? That doesn't make any sense. Like narratively doesn't make sense so i know that's not what it's saying because this 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 wouldn't be nearly as popular of a book if that's what it was saying but that does make sense to me that yeah yeah i mean it, it's 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 it can be hard to judge because biblical writers i mean you've probably noticed this if you if you spent especially in the gospels if you if you've compared the gospels they are very selective uh in what they do what they what they choose to put in uh, the narrative, what they choose to not put in, even the order of things can be different uh, between the Gospels, and that's because, on the one hand, they're all drawing from the same stories and, and with with at least two of the Gospel writers, their own life experiences. Uh, two of the Gospel writers were not members of the Twelve; two of them were, but they're sort of all drawing from the same pool, you know, of ideas, and. And they, they pick what they want to pick, and they arrange it the way they want to arrange it because they all have their own agendas. And I'm not using agenda as a sinister word. I mean, they're writing intelligently. They, they have a very specific audience in mind. They have a specific set of circumstances in mind. And they're going to write their book, arrange their material, do what they do to communicate, or I think better to say, emphasize certain ideas and present the material in certain ways so that their audiences will be able to track with them. Now, illustration. Matthew is is considered by scholars the most Jewish of the Gospels. Why? There's, there's one very simple reason. There are other reasons, but one very simple one is that whenever Matthew uses a cultural term, like korban, he doesn't define it. The other Gospels do. They have to explain it, which tells us that they might have been writing for Gentiles. They might have been anticipating a Gentile audience, whereas Matthew doesn't do any of that. He never defines his terms because he assumes his audience knows what he's talking about. So right right there, just that one little snippet, 
you have a flavoring. And so if we know that Matthew is writing for a, a, a literate, intelligent Jewish audience, well, that explains why he does some of what he does elsewhere, uh, as opposed to Mark or you know Luke. Luke is a Gentile. Lucas is, is a Gentile name. He's writing for a Gentile. He tells you that in the first couple of verses. So he's not tracking the same way that a Matthew is. But, mm. You know, they're, they're good writers. They, 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 have a, they have a story to tell, and they have an angle to take with that story that is really driven by their goals as writers and who their audience is. Now, I'm glad you brought The one that's another weird one is Luke. That's the one with the whole, they've got to go back to Bethlehem to do a census thing. Are, are you, oh, you're talking about the, uh, the, the, well, the, the birth Luke, narrative, yeah. Birth narrative, yeah. Is that, yeah, like, the whole, the whole census with Quirinius and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it just, I mean, I guess I'm asking, what's the deal? Because from what I've read, that's not a thing. <laughs> like, you never had to go back to your hometown for a census. There was no record of the census and no one else talked about this. It, it, it depends really how you, how you, parse the idea of a, of a census and who you think, what you think prompted it. There, there were official censuses, there were, you know, it, it, there were different reasons for wanting to count people is what it comes down to. And they didn't all, such directives did not all have to originate at the same place or from the same person and naturally for the same reason. So if you, if you compare sort of you know, like, let, let's just say, for the sake of discussion, we have a, a list of all the Roman censuses, you know, from X, X year to X year. And, you know, this one doesn't align with, you know, something that's going on here with the Gospels. Well, maybe that's because the writer is using a term that could have been used for that kind of census, but it was also used for some other, you know, accounting, you know, from some local official or for some other people. In the Curious example, Curious is sort of a notorious, you know, kind of figure. There are there are people, you know, who have made what I would call pretty good attempts at identifying him, and then that becomes sort of the key to explaining this event. What what kind of event was it, uh, as opposed to, you know, what, what you brought up about, uh, you know, a, a census with a with a specific set of circumstances. You know, the the honest answer is. is those explanations, even though they're workable, nothing has really won the day uh, as far as Curinius goes. And so it, it's still sort of a matter for, you know, what, how exactly should we, we understand what Luke is alluding to here? There are a couple of options, and, and we're not really sure which one is the right one, uh, you know, to, to sort of set, you know, kind of, you know, put, put what he's saying and you know, set it in its proper context. Now, this might be so another one. Of, oh, sorry. It's still a, a problem. It, it, that that passage is still, you know, one that would, scholars would refer to as, you know, a problem for New Testament interpretation. Now, I've heard, and this, this might be, you know, another one of those view through a filter ancient alien type things, that this was, that there was a, a prophecy, a Jewish prophecy saying the Messiah, the anointed one, whatever, will be born in a manger under a star and some wise men are going to show up. And that's why Luke put it in that context. 
Is that just some Da Vinci Code stuff that I've heard, or is that like an actual thing? <laughs> there, there, there's no prophecy that has the Messiah being born in a manger. There's no prophecy that specifies that that wise men will show up. Um, I mean, there, there, there is there is an association with a star, but the the interesting thing, and this is Matthew. Matthew's the only one that mentions the star, and the the odd thing is. He he has the uh, he has the magi, you know, and, and we don't even know that there were three, because the narrative never says there were three. That that is deduced from the three gifts, but the narrative never actually gives you a number. But anyway, there's a a passage in the book of Numbers, which is in the Torah, that says a star, you know, shall rise out of Jacob. Matthew never quotes that passage. <laughs> when he's talking about the star in the birth narrative. So that isn't what he was thinking of when he was talking about the star. Uh, you know, that's the only star reference you get uh, in the Old Testament that, that has any sort of messianic connotations, at least, you know, to, to this individual, you know, person that, that we would refer to as the Messiah. So you got you got one out of three there. There there is yeah, there not, is and barely that one. Yeah. And a, and a point five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there is a, a star passage that Matthew just ignored, uh, and then the other two, you know, sort of fall by the wayside. I mean, I I, I personally find the the uh, the birth narrative and the star narrative interesting because, and I, I, I'm in the minority here. Uh, there there is a a genre of of literature in the Greco-Roman period uh, known as astral prophecy. Uh, and I think, I, I could never prove it, but I think there's a good argument to be made that the account in Matthew 2 is correlatable with the astral imagery of Revelation 12. Uh, the, the, the problem is, is that produces a, a birth year uh, for Jesus that appears, and I say appears because it, it actually is sort of vapor, that appears to contradict the Herodian chronology that, that's, you know, pretty well known. It has Jesus being born in, uh, in 3 BC, whereas the traditional date is earlier because Jesus has to be born for the death of Herod and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it's actually, it actually is workable because more recent uh, research on Herodian chronology based on Herodian coins uh, shows that, you know, Josephus, not just Josephus, but others, there were competing and overlapping dating systems. So you actually can have uh, one system put it at 3 BC and the other system put it at the more traditional date. Um, so it's it's not it's not as big of an impasse as you'd think. But, you know, I'm interested in that just because I like that subject. Uh, you know, was Matthew thinking about this? You know, there is a wider tradition, not specifically associated with the Messiah, that connects 12 tribes to celestial phenomena. Joseph's dream is, is probably the best example. Uh, in the ancient world, divine beings were, were thought of as celestial because that's why, you know, that, that we don't live there. So the gods must live there. And the, the Messiah was again, imagined, you know, to be and believed to be a, a divine, you know, being, you know, come to earth, so on and so forth. And so there is some importance to 
celestial imagery you know, used in the Gospels that connect to other passages, but Matthew does not uh, refer to, again, the, the passage in the book of Numbers specifically. I, I personally don't think that's what he was thinking at all. Yeah, it doesn't sound uh, like it to me. <laughs> I, think he gives us, yeah, I think he gives us the Magi story for, for a different reason. Now, he's, I, not, uh, he's not alluding to the other thing. Uh, it's, it's wrapping up, I just hopefully this can be done quickly. I was, are you familiar with, um, I don't know the guy that came up with it, but I watched Jim Mars talk about monatomic gold. Have you, are you familiar with this? You know, I've, I've, I've heard the term, but I don't really know what it is. Well, he claims that it's the white powder of gold is the alchemical substance that's the, the philosopher's stone. Uh, it was the secret held under the Temple of Solomon for the Templars. It's everything as with every conspiracy theory. But his one point that he made, well, there's two. The one I want to focus on is, one, he said he was what mana is in the when they're wandering around in the desert. That it was actually, that's the mana, is this white powder gold that apparently no, they can it, eat. It's spelled completely differently, and it's obviously a different term, okay. but go ahead. One, thank you. No, no, that's, I'm, when I said Jim Mars, I was assuming all of this is going to be wrong. I just want to have it proven. Um <laughs> Also, well, no wait. Jim Mars has has said that I'm a I'm a government disinformation. How is he? So. Oh, I had no idea. I'm sorry. I, have to, I apologize. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> and I and I kind of like the sound of that. So I just don't tell my wife where the checks go. Yeah, well done. You're part of the black government. <laughs> but the other the other note he made, and I did like a vague search for it. But again, it's tough because most of the websites you come up with are ancient aliens type stuff. But he made a reference that. Moses and Akhenaten might be the same person. And it's like no, no, nobody in biblical studies. Okay, that because the surface level narrative makes sense, and then there was a reference that Moses may have been—he was raised with the, raised in Egypt with the noble class or whatever—that mm -hmm. it sort of fit on a you know on my completely lay level. But if you type that into Google, most of the results are weirdo websites, so it's very tough oh, it, for someone it, like me to look up. <laughs> Well, I mean, think about it. So if, if Moses is Akhenaten, then who's the pharaoh that Moses rebels against? Well, I mean, you, you, don't have, you don't have another pharaoh other than Akhenaten living in Akhenaten's time. I mean, so you, you more or less just have... Oh, well, his theory know, is... is yeah. Well, his theory is when Akhenaten, because uh, he kind of disappears from the narrative after proclaiming the one god and moving the temple, uh, the Egyptian capital or whatever, that that's when the Moses narrative happened. So it's yeah, after he doesn't, he doesn't disappear. <laughs> oh, do they he, actually say know, he's he, dead? <laughs> well, you know, people, the people of Egypt know that their, relig their traditional religion is getting trashed by this, this king yeah. who, you know, has moved you know, his capital to, you know, to what we call Amarna now. You know, Akhet Aten was his name for it. So you know, yeah, he moves the capital, but it's not like he disappears. I mean, he's still ruling Egypt. They still hate his, his guts. You know, they, <laughs> he still has to contend with all his predecessors, you know, high officials. And, you know, it's it's not like everybody, anybody's wondering where did he go. Well, I mean, the end of his life is, again, uh, this is the very much the way they said it. I'm certainly not claiming this to be a true thing, but that uh, there's no death narrative for him, and that's where the... The, at least I think that whatever. All right, so there's no foundation for it. There's no reason to overly describe this nonsense to you. Well, yeah. <laughs> chronologically, yeah. there there are two major you know chronological systems, and they they actually curiously enough, you know, for the sake of our discussion, uh, evolve from whether we should take the number forty literally or not. 
there's an there's an early date chronology for the Exodus that would place the Exodus at 1446 BC, and that takes a number in the Book of Kings, 1 Kings 6:1, literally. It says that in the fourth year of Solomon, that was the 480th anniversary of the Exodus from Egypt. Well, Solomon, again, inside the first millennium, is is pretty dateable because he has relationships with other kings in the ancient Near East. So that can be pretty well set at 966, so you add 480 at 1446, which could be simpler. Well, 480 is 12 times 40. So if, mm. if it's a symbolic value, then you're dealing with something different. And that's why most scholars are actually uh, treating that number, for the 480 there, symbolically. And that produces a late chronology, which essentially moves at 200 years. And that's why you get Ramses as the pharaoh of the Exodus as opposed to Amenhotep the, the second or third or one of the Amenhoteps. So there's this wide variance. Now, why do I bring that up? Because Akhenaten doesn't fit into either chronology. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just there's, there's no way to, to just make kings in the Egyptian king list disappear so that Jim Mars can be correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, once he said that, the alchemical powder of, you know, uh, infinite life was also the stuff that was on the floor of the desert. I was, at that point, I was pretty sure we weren't in the realm of, you know, uh, provability. Think about the <laughs> assumption, though. Think about the assumption. The assumption is that it, it's impossible for two ancient people to think that there was one high God. Why? Yeah. Why is that thought impossible? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's no, yeah, no, there's no reason. Yeah. That's, yeah, on, uh, I guess one more ridiculous one maybe we can cross out, though I think this one might have evidence. Do you know if there's any backing to that whole, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia story? I think Graham Hancock covered it. Yeah, I, I reviewed Hancock's book and it back in 1994. And I referred to it as a mixture of the sublime and the ridiculous. Because <laughs> um, there are some things he does really well in the book, and there are some things that he just does really badly in the book. Um, I'll, I'll try to summarize what, okay, what Hancock doesn't tell you. It, or there are two things he doesn't tell you. So let me preface it with this, but then I'll, I'll go back to the Ethiopian question. He doesn't tell you that the, the the quotation he takes from the journal of Abu Saleh at the beginning of his book was written in like the 12th century, and that the description of the ark in that journal does not resemble the biblical description of the ark. In other words, it, it's been Christianized and has other symbols on it and whatnot. So he, he doesn't tell you that. And the other thing he doesn't tell you is that in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 3.16, Jeremiah is writing in the 6th century B.C., just before the uh, the temple gets destroyed. And he says that after we're essentially out of this mess, we're going to get our butts kicked, but after we're on the other side of it, you know, God's going to bring us back to the land, everything will be okay, and there will be no more talk, no more wish of the Ark of the Covenant. And he actually says that. He, he suggests that, that we're not going to have it again, and nobody's going to really care. So, again, Hancock doesn't tell you stuff like that. Now, let's go back to the Ethiopian view, because I actually like that view. <laughs> it's, it's the most interesting of, of if you're going to have a view of what happened to the Ark, this is 
the one that's the most entertaining, I think. There, There's no... I think Hancock does a decent job of creating a set of circumstances. He has to take some logical leaps in places, uh, creating a set of circumstances about the art, but it entirely depends on the assumption that the Queen of Sheba uh, went after her visit from Solomon, went went back to her home country pregnant you know, with one of Solomon's children. The narrative never says that. Um, Sheba is really not equatable with Ethiopia. That's the big problem for the, for the view. But the Ethiopian tradition, the Abyssinian tradition, you know, they have, you know, all of this sort of spelled out. You know, the Queen of Sheba belongs to them, and she goes back as a kid named Menelik the First, and he's a descendant of Solomon, and that's where the ark winds up before you know the Babylonians destroy the temple, and so on and so forth. So, if you make certain assumptions, it it can come together. But again, the problem is, is you don't know how secure the assumptions are. Um, you know, for for the idea, and then you have to contend with again Jeremiah, you know, basically saying, you know, it, it's gone and nobody's going to care about it. You know, we're not we're not going to re. It actually the verse actually says that, that we're not going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant being rebuilt. Well, that would suggest it was destroyed in the first place. If it was, we're not going to bother, you know, reconstructing one anyway. So, oh, okay. you know, that that kind of just poo-poo's all of the the, the post-Nebuchadnezzar conquest uh, theories about the Ark, but you know it, it, it hasn't, it didn't stop. You know, lots of speculation about about the Ark because it's true that it's not uh, mentioned in the booty. You know that uh, that goes to Babylon, and it's not mentioned in the Book of Ezra. You know, among the vessels that come back, you know, to uh, to Judea after the exile is over. That's true. Uh, the problem is, is it really isn't mentioned anywhere. And so, again, people speculate as to what could have happened to it. Yeah. But I, I like the view. I, I think it's interesting. But there are just, it has two or three pretty significant obstacles uh, in the way. And, and you have to, again, you have to float ideas that are like, yeah, that's possible, but we don't really have any data to actually support that. But in theory, that's possible, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's just so interesting to see, you know, a film crew outside of this church that theoretically could have the arc in it. Like, it's just, it's so movie, you know, interesting. <laughs> it is, you know, and I, I, it's one of the reasons I read, you know, Hancock's book, because I was, I was aware of, of the idea. And like I said, there are places in the book I think he does a really good job, and there are other places that he just, boy, you know, he, he just jumps the shark with a few things. Yeah. And then... A lot of disappointment in that respect. Yeah, I've, I've not read that entire book. That was, uh... I've more watched the documentary, unfortunately, but that's the nature of things. Well, it's not a, it's not a bad read. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a good writer. I mean, I think, I think you know, some of his, his other stuff is... You know, I hate to put it this way, but I think some of his other stuff is worse. You know, as mm. far as just being entirely speculation driven, uh, this is one of his earlier books, and you know it, it, it's interesting. I mean, like I said, it, it's a mixture of well, you did a good job here, and like man, you know, let's just tell people we're speculating. <laughs> yeah. On on that note, speculation on my part, and 
maybe somebody's come up with this uh, theory as well, colloquial theory, obviously. But it, it, so, um, what's his, uh, John Anthony West and Baval come up with the water erosion around the Sphinx theory, makes the Sphinx go really far back in time. It, it yeah, just, Robert Robert Shock, you know. Oh, Shock. That's it. The geology guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Shock. Um, is uh, is it not possible that that was just a water feature? Like, because wasn't the Nile right there? Like, it was the Nile had shifted uh, since then. Like, couldn't that yeah, water erosion have, be just? Yeah, you'd, you'd, what what you'd want is you'd want to find the same erosion patterns, like on the pyramid and, and some of the other, you know, some other other. Uh, monumental, you know, pieces of monumental architecture that, that have reasonable proximity, you know, to the Nile. I don't, I don't think anybody's, well, I, I know nobody's shown that, but I actually don't know if they've even bothered to, to go look for that, you know, cause, because if you're presuming, you know, a higher water level at a certain period of time. Oh, I was thinking canal, actually. I meant they built a water feature. Like, they literally just dug out a little tributary so they filled in the gap around the... Because, I mean, the Sphinx looks weird. There's a big hole where it sits in. Yeah. It would make more yeah, sense to be a water level. Shock's, yeah. Shock's competitors, I mean, I don't I don't have the URLs at the top of my head, but yeah. if, if people go to my website at drmsh.com and they put in uh, Sphinx and, I, and Shock, I'm trying to remember how to spell his, his last name. I think it's S-C-H. Yeah, I think you're right. Something like that. Um, if, if they put that in, you'll, you'll find a, a couple of things I've blogged about this. Shock's geo, geological competitors, and these are just, this is just geological stuff. It has nothing to do with Egyptology. But his, his geological, uh, naysayers, uh, have, again, done their own studies, and they believe that the, the erosion is not water, but, you know, it's caused by air, air current. So, I mean, people mm. can, can read that. You know, and I don't know who's right because I'm not a geologist, but, you know, shock, shock's view, while it's gotten a lot of play, you know, both in terms of his own publishing efforts and, and interviews and then some stuff on TV, uh, his, the, the other side of it hasn't gotten nearly as much attention, but, but people are aware of it. And again, people in his field are, have questioned his research and offered, you know, their own, their own take on the data. Yeah, so people I, are from that. I'd recommend you know go up, go up and search for it. You know, you know, you'll get the links there. Yeah, drmsh.com. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. the only reason I was coming up with like you know canal water feature thing is because it just it just seems way too hard to have the Sphinx be that old. I mean, just frankly, you know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence, and yeah. it just doesn't seem to be. There needs to be a lot more evidence other than that one king's list from whenever that was. You know, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, even, yeah. even the yeah. No, I no, I follow you. Yeah. Even the the astronomy, you know, because Baval and, and others have tried to, uh, and Hancock is one, um, have tried to use astronomy to, you know, push back uh, the dating of the pyramid and, and so on and so forth. The Egyptologists and, and people who focus on Egyptian mathematics and geometry and astronomy have really paid a lot of attention, a lot of attention to Baval. And critiqued um, his approach, you know, the, the whole Orion correlation view. They've, they've taken it seriously. It's, it's a good example of something that you would associate, you know, sort of with fringe archaeology, actually getting serious and sustained attention uh, within the, the Egyptological community. 
I'll bet I have I'll bet I have thirty or forty articles just on that. Um, you know, the air shafts, the, the, all the astronomical angles, and all that kind of stuff. So that that has really gone back and forth a lot. And you know, again, the, the mainstream has I think been respectful to Baval, but they're not persuaded. Uh, and, and for a number of, of reasons, they don't think he's correct, and they certainly don't think um, what Hancock has done with, and I guess Baval's sort of jumped on this bandwagon too now, but what, what Hancock sort of did with the Orion correlation theory to posit this prior civilization, uh, they're, they're certainly not persuaded of that. But that's actually a really good example of, of something that, you know, if, if you if you have access to the journal material, you could you could spend weeks, you know, going through that stuff uh, because it did it did get a lot of attention and you know serious attention, not just to poke fun at it, but people really interacting with it, uh, which is kind of nice. It's, it's also kind of unusual, unfortunately. Yeah, it's nice to hear though. I'm it's I'm glad that the fringe stuff can. I'm glad that the you know the standard archaeological community is willing to listen at times because that's the big arche- yeah. that's the big complaint of the fringe community saying, no, science is closed off and they'll never listen to us. And this is nice to hear. Oh, apparently if you put up a theory that sounds good, maybe they will listen to you. Yeah, I mean, he, he see, what, what Baval did, which most of these fringe people, and certainly the ancient alien people, will, will not do, is Baval submitted his idea to peer review. And, and people looked at it. He got it published. I think his first publication, he's had several now, uh, was in the journal Discussions in Egyptology, which is a mainstream, you know, Egyptological journal. So he submitted that to peer review, and it, it passed peer review. It's not that everybody agreed with it, and most people didn't agree with him, but they thought, you know, this is really worth discussing. So I, I'm always, you know, asking, you know, people, you know, well, if, if Sitchin's just such this wonderful scholar, you know, why don't, why didn't he, and why don't you? submit his you know, ideas to peer review. Then you get all these lame answers like, oh, he was just so brilliant they won't understand him. Or, you know, you know people, people who aren't in the mainstream, they're just going to be persecuted. You know, it's just so lame. You know, this, is why, this is why peer review is important because you submit an idea and if you get five or six people looking at this thing who, who really know the field well, they're going to know if there's something to noodle here or not. And if there is something worth thinking about, they'll publish it. They don't have to agree with it. They just they want to get it out there so that the rest of the people in their community can, you know, take a, take a whack at it, either validate it or, or debunk it or overturn it or come up with something that, that's new that uses it, but it's worth discussing. You know, if you can't make it through that process, then, you know, the, the verdict is there's just nothing here. It, it's either silly or, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree or whatever. Yeah, I think but Baval, he got his idea published in you know, in a respectable journal, and that's what needs to happen. So then, people who really do have domain knowledge can interact with it, and you, know, you find out, you know, what what about the theory is really you know solid, and what what isn't, you know, where the gaps are, you know, what you need, you know, to really make this case, and it's not present or it is present, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the fringe community needs to understand that. And it's something I try to come out of everything. Like, I like believing in stuff. That's my, I think it's fun, but I like to keep a skeptical mind and I'm willing to change my mind instantly. And the skeptical community needs to keep that in mind that that's what science is trying to do too. You know, that's why there's peer reviewed journals. That's, they're not a closed, I mean, they're a closed off system, but not 
by some shadowy government organization. It's, you know, you probably can pay some dues and you can get all their public work, published works. It's, everything's on the table. It's just, it seems like there's a conspiracy because it's a conspiracy by ignorance almost. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, peer review is, is not a perfect process. I mean, in, in the sciences, there, there's a little more, you know, because the, because the scientific community, you know, they there's a lot of money there, you know, government grants and whatnot. Uh, the peer review in, in the hard sciences has taken you know some hits, you know, even recently, for the, you know the validity of the process you know, on on a couple articles. But what what it tells you is that people are watching that. Yeah. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's like, oh, well, that's kind of icky, you know, that that this journal published this article and really didn't do a good job out of it. It, you know, really, really looks like this was politicized. You know, to publish this and not that. But hey, someone caught it because they're paying attention. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, because we heard about them getting caught. That's yeah, proof of proof of concept. On that note, I've just sucked up way too much of your time. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Everything you study, I'm nope. jealous of. <laughs> well, thank thanks for having me. And uh, everybody can find you on drmsh.com. And uh, right, that's. The nerve center there. And then uh, any other places you want people to find you? Uh, Twitter's any other thing? Please feel free to say. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, but if if you go to drmsh.com, you'll get the links for RSS feeds to my blogs and to the main site and to Twitter and everything else. So that, like I said, that that's the nerve center. That's the place you need to land. Thank you again so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it, and um, have a very wonderful night, sir.